The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, what to make of it all, Holmes? The receipt of the printed letter, the black-bearded spy in the hansom, the loss of the new brown boot, the loss of the old black boot, the return of the new brown boot. And now these two telegrams, I fear, bearing no fresh light. Read them, my dear Watson. Right, the first. I've just heard that Barrymore is at the hall, Baskerville. The second. Visited 23 hotels as directed, but sorry to report, unable to trace cut sheets of times. Cartwright. There go two of my threads, Watson. There is nothing more stimulating than a case where everything goes against you. We have still the cabman who drove the spy. And, if I'm not mistaken, this is he now. I wired expressly to request that he call on us in person. My name's John Clayton. And I've driven cab 2704 this seven years and never had a word of complaint. I want to ask you, what have you got against me? I have nothing in the world against you, my good man. On the contrary, I have half a sovereign for you if you give me a clear answer to my questions. Oh, well now, this is turning out a good day and no mistake. Uh, what is it you wanted to ask, sir? Tell me all about the fair who came and watched this house at ten o'clock this morning and afterwards followed the two gentlemen down Regent Street. Oh, well, there's no good my telling you things, for you seem to know as much as I do already. The truth is that the gentleman told me he was a detective and that I was to say nothing about him to anyone. And what did this detective call himself? His name, he said his name, was Sherlock Holmes. Ha, 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 An undeniable touch. I feel a foil as quick and supple as my own. So, his name was Sherlock Holmes, was it? And how would you describe Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Well, I'd, uh, I'd put him at 40 years of age, and he was of a middle height. He was dressed like a toff, and he had a black beard, cut square at the end, and a pale face. Well then, here is your half-sovereign. There's another one waiting for you, if you can bring any more information. Good night. The cunning rascal. He knew our number knew that Sir Henry Baskerville had consulted me, spotted who I was in Regent Street, conjectured that I had got the number of the cab and would lay my hands on the driver, and so sent back this audacious message. I tell you, Watson, this time we have got a foeman who is worthy of our steel. I've been checkmated in London. I can only wish you better luck in Devonshire. But it's an ugly business, Watson. An ugly, dangerous business. And the more I see of it, the less I like it. <laughs> yes, my dear fellow, you may laugh. But I give you my word that I shall be very glad to have you back safe and sound in Baker Street once more. Over the moor, there rose in the distance a grey, melancholy hill with a strange, jagged summit, dim and vague in the distance, like some fantastic landscape in a dream. Baskerville sat for a long time, his eyes fixed upon it, and I read upon his eager face how much it meant to him, this first sight of that strange spot where the men of his blood had held sway so long and left their mark so deep. Soon we had left the fertile country behind and beneath us. The road in front of us grew bleaker and milder. 
Suddenly, we looked down into a cup-like depression, patched with stunted oaks and firs, which had been twisted and bent by the fury of years of storm. Two high, narrow towers rose over the trees. Baskerville Hall. In the fading light, I could see that the center of the house was a heavy block of building from which a porch projected. The whole front was draped in ivy, with a patch clipped bare here and there, where a window or a coat of arms broke through the dark veil. From the central block rose the twin towers, ancient, crenellated, and pierced with many loopholes. <laughs> Welcome, Sir Henry. Welcome to Baskerville Hall. The Barrymores. You're in good hands now. Uh, you don't mind my driving straight home, Sir Henry. My wife is expecting me. Well, goodbye, and I'll never hesitate, night or day, to send for me if I can be of service. The high, thin window of old stained glass. The oak panelling. The stag's heads, the coats of arms upon the walls. It's just as I imagined it. To think that this should be the same hall in which for 500 years my people have lived. Uh, Sir Henry, my wife and I will be happy to stay with you until you have made your fresh arrangements. But you will understand that under the new conditions, this house will require a considerable staff. But your family have been with us for several generations, have they not? I should be sorry to begin my life here by breaking an old family connection. I feel that also, sir. And so does my wife. But, to tell the truth, sir, we were both very much attached to Sir Charles, and his death gave us a shock. I... I fear that we shall never again be easy in our minds at Baskerville Hall. And now, sir, perhaps I'd best show you to your rooms. I suggest we retire early. Things may well seem brighter in the morning. I say, what was that soldier watching for on the moor? Did Mortimer say? A convict escaped from Princetown, name of Selden. A bad hat? Altogether bad. The Notting Hill murderer. Sherlock Holmes took a most particular interest in his crimes on account of the peculiar ferocity and wanton brutality with which they were enacted. A somber thought to take with us to our beds. Let's hope the morning does indeed bring us cheer. Weary and yet wakeful in the night, tossing restlessly from side to side, seeking for the sleep which would not come. The clock chimes, but otherwise a deathly silence upon the old house. And then, in the very dead of night, a sound clear, resonant, and unmistakable. The noise could not be far away, certainly in the house. For half an hour I wait with every nerve on the alert, but there comes no other sound save the chiming clock 
and the rustle of the ivy on the wall. I guess it is ourselves and not the house that we have to blame. Now we are fresh and well, so it is all cheerful once more. Yes, uh, and yet, it was not entirely a question of imagination. <clears throat> Sir Henry, did you happen to hear a woman sobbing in the night? I did when I was half asleep, fancy that I heard something of the sort. But I concluded that it was all a dream. I heard it distinctly, and I am sure that it was really the sob of a woman. <coughs> Here's Barrymore now. Barrymore? Did you hear a woman crying in the night? Uh, there are only two women in the house, Sir Henry. One is the scullery maid who sleeps in the other wing. The other is my wife. And I can answer for it that the sound could not have come from her. But it chanced that after breakfast I met Mrs. Barrymore in the long corridor with the sun full upon her face. Her telltale eyes were red and glanced at me from between swollen lids. Barrymore had lied. Already around this pale-faced, handsome, black-bearded man there was gathering an atmosphere of mystery and of gloom. It was he who had been the first to discover the body of Sir Charles, and we had only his word for all the circumstances which led up to the old man's death. Was it possible that it was Barrymore after all, whom we'd seen in the cabin Regent Street? How could I settle the point forever? The only conceivable motive was that if the Baskerville family could be scared away, a comfortable and permanent home would be secured for the Barrymores. But surely such an explanation as that would be quite inadequate to account for the deep and subtle scheming which seemed to be weaving an invisible net around the young baronet. I prayed, as I walked back along the grey, lonely road, that my friend Sherlock Holmes might soon be freed from his preoccupations and able to come down to take this heavy burden of responsibility from my shoulders. I say, Dr. Watson! Hello, Dr. Watson! Sir? <sighs> You will, I'm sure, excuse my presumption, Dr. Watson. Here on the moor we are homely folk and do not wait for formal introductions. You may possibly have heard my name from our mutual friend Mortimer. I am Stapleton of Merripit House. Uh, your net and box would have told me as much, for I knew that Mr. Stapleton was a naturalist. But how did you know me? Oh, I've been calling on Mortimer and he pointed you out to me from the window of his surgery. I trust that Sir Henry is none the worse for his journey. He is very well, thank you. We were all rather afraid that after the sad death of Sir Charles, the new baronet might refuse to live here. Sir Henry has, I suppose, no superstitious fears in the matter. But of course you know the legend of a fiend dog which haunts the family. I have heard of it, yes. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary how credulous the peasants are about here. Any number of them are ready to swear that they have seen such a creature upon the moor. The story took a great hold upon the imagination of Sir Charles, and I have no doubt that it led to his tragic end. You think, then, that some dog pursued Sir Charles and that he died of fright in consequence? Have you any better explanation? 
Oh, and what about Mr. Sherlock Holmes? What? But how did you... Ah, it is useless for us to pretend that we do not know you, Dr. Watson. May I ask, is he going to honor us with a visit himself? He cannot leave town at present. He has other cases which engage his attention. Ah, what a pity. But as to your own researches, if there is any possible way in which I can be of service to you, I trust that you will command me. I assure you that I am simply here upon a visit to my friend Sir Henry, and that I need no help of any kind. Excellent. Oh, you are perfectly right to be wary and discreet. No, I am justly reproved for what I feel was an unjustifiable intrusion. Okay, Anna, a moderate walk along this moor path brings us to Merripit House. Perhaps you will spare an hour that I may have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister. Very well. Oh, you never tire of the moor. You cannot think the wonderful secrets which it contains. So vast, so barren, so mysterious. I've only been here two years, but my tastes led me to explore every part of the country round. And I shall think that there are few men who know it better than I do. Is it hard to know? Oh, very hard. Uh, you see, uh, for example, this great plain to the north here with the queer hills breaking out of it. Now, you would naturally think it a rare place for a gallop. And the thought has cost several uh, lives before now. You'll notice those uh, bright green spots scattered thickly over it. Yes, they seem more fertile than the rest. <laughs> well, that is the great Grimpen Mire. A false step yonder means death to man or beast. Uh, only yesterday, I saw one of the moor ponies wander into it. He never came out. I watched his head for quite a long time, craning out of the bog hole, but it sucked him down at last. It's a bad place, the great Grimpen Mire. And you say you can penetrate it? Oh, uh, yes, there are one or two paths which a very active man can take. I have found them out. But why would you wish to go into so horrible a place? Now, that is where the rare plants and the butterflies are, if you have the wit to reach them. I shall try my luck someday. Well, for God's sake, put such an idea out of your mind. Your blood will be upon my head. I assure you that there would not be the least chance of your coming back alive. No, it is only by remembering certain complex landmarks that I am able to do it. I see. Uh, hello. What is that? The peasants say it is the hound of the Baskervilles, calling for its prey. The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 